You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents Network of Podcasts. I'm Anna Maria Alessi. In 2008, Harper Audio published a new, unabridged recording of The Phantom Tollbooth, written by Norton Juster and wonderfully narrated by David Hyde Pierce. We were also fortunate to have the opportunity to interview the author, and we thought we'd share the interview with you because it's so fun to hear directly from the author about the book that was described by the Paris Review as a book that revels in the freedom and power of language to mean more than one thing at a time and to make an alternate reality. We also thought you'd enjoy hearing the first chapter read by David Hyde Pierce. So sit back, relax, and here now is Norton Juster, David Hyde Pierce, and a bit of the delectable The Phantom Tollbooth. This is Michael Conroy from Harper Audio, and it's my privilege today to be speaking with Norton Juster about his classic, The Phantom Tollbooth. What was your inspiration for writing The Phantom Tollbooth? How did the book come about? Well, it would probably be easier to talk first about how the book came about than what the inspiration for it was. I had gotten a grant to do a book on um, urban planning and perception for children. And I started on it and worked for about six months on it and realized that uh, it was just not a book I wanted to write. It was much too demanding, and I'm not a, a scholar or a disciplined writer. So in order to get away from it, I began or to clear my mind from it. I began to do a little story about, mostly about myself when I was about 10 or 11 years old. And it just kept growing and growing and growing. And I realized that the reason I did it was to get away from doing what I was supposed to be doing. And throughout my whole life, that's been one of the major motivations for the things I've done. In other words, I do my best work when I'm trying to avoid doing some other kind of work. (laughs) But in terms of inspiration, I don't know whether you can really call it inspiration. Uh, Nothing, no lightning bolt came through the window, no great sudden revelation uh, struck me. Uh, It's mostly my being put in touch, I guess, through starting this little story, with my own childhood. And I began to remember a lot of things, not so much particular facts, but the way things used to feel and, and my confusion at having to learn a lot of things and not having any idea how I would ever use them or what they would ever mean in my life. Uh, and, and this was really kind of, uh, kind of very strange for me. So the inspiration was, was really my beginning to understand how crazy it is for kids of my age when they go to school to understand why it is they're learning all these things. And it just happened that way. So then if you were just writing it while you were avoiding the nonfiction... Were you writing it in sequence? Did you write it in order, or were you just writing a scene here and a scene there? Well, that's exactly what happened. I was writing a scene here and a scene there, and I was writing pages and pages of dialogue, uh, mainly so I could get in touch with some of these characters I had, you know, invented along the way so that I knew what they were like and how they would react to things and what they would say. And um, I remember writing very different scenes and not having any idea where they would go. And then I finally I reached the point where I said, well, I should really have a beginning to this thing. And that's when I started writing the beginning sections of the book. But when I'd written about 50 pages, uh, a friend took it to someone that she knew at Random House. And she said before taking it in, 
why don't you do a little synopsis of the rest of the book so they know what it's about? So I wrote up an entirely fictitious synopsis, and when, years later, when I took it out and read it, it had nothing to do with the way the book developed. It was just you know something that I wrote for them. But they, at, on the basis of about 50 pages, really liked the book, and they decided they were going to publish it and gave me an advance, and I started working on it. So did anything from the urban aesthetics book make it in? Because there's, I mean... Yes, there were a number of things that did. There's a section in the book on the cities of illusion and reality that um, I think came directly from my my research and my thoughts on, on the city book. Uh, and I think, in general, most of the scenes, I was talking to someone not so long ago about this, that my architectural work and my architectural and planning training very much colors the way I people my scenes and and, uh, and write about things. In other words, I have to know what things are going to look like and feel like, how people are going to dress, a whole range of things that anchor, really, the action for me. And that's directly a result of that training, I think. Milo lives in an apartment building, and that's that's so different from... It was so different from my experience when I was a boy and was reading The Phantom Tollbooth. It, was, it seemed very New York and very exotic. Well, it was interesting to me that I didn't live in an apartment building either. I lived in a two-family house in, in Brooklyn. But most of my friends lived in apartment buildings, and when I visited them, it was always like a kind of a fairyland, all these people and elevators going up and down. And I always imagined what a wonderful, romantic thing it would be if I lived in an apartment <laughs> building. And so I had a chance to put myself in one. That's very nice, yes. Were you intentionally writing a book for children? I asked the question just because, you know, the puns and the language... When I brought the final manuscript in, the first question that the editor asked me was, what age group do you see it for? And I, it absolutely baffled me because I had never thought of that. I wrote the book for myself. I had no idea it, you know, whether it was a children's book. I knew vaguely probably it was, a, it was something for children, but I had no idea you know, of any particular age group you know, at all. And the interesting thing is I get a lot of mail on the book, and I'll get, I've had this happen a number of times. I'll get a letter from someone about nine years old, and they'll tell me about the book as they see it. And then four or five years later, I'll get another letter. Then this child will tell me, I wrote you when I was nine. I'm now 14, and I'm in high school. And they will write me about the book again. And it's almost like reading, like they were reading a different book. It's very much different to them at 14 than it was at nine. And I've gotten several of them where kids have written me from three different points of view, you know, when they were in elementary school, when they were high school, and even when they're in college. <laughs> and I, I find that enormously pleasing because I love the idea of the book meaning different things to different people at different times in their lives. Now, that makes it very alive for me. Right. My father was a great punster and loved wordplay. My father would come into a room, or I'd come into the room, and my father would say, Aha, I see you're coming early since lately. You used to be behind before, but now you're first at last. <laughs> I didn't have a clue what he was talking about. And he'd look at me and my befuddlement and put his arm around me and say, You're a good kid, and I'd like to see you get ahead. You need one. <laughs> and I was brought up on this constantly. Every day, something like this would happen. Right. And it stuck. Getting back to the question you asked on inspiration... It was probably a number of things. First of all, there was my father. Right. Secondly, I grew up at a time when, when you came home from school at 3 o'clock, there were a series of radio serials. There was no television. Radio serials every 15 minutes and action things going for kids. And I loved that kind of dramatic form of these things. They were quite wonderful. 
Uh, and the other thing, and I think probably one of the great influences, was I grew up at the time, at a time when all the Marx Brothers films were being made. And these were absolutely wonderful because they were so insane. And yet the insanity itself had a logic and a meaning all its own. And so I love those. Those are the kinds of things that well, I think all unconsciously went into the Phantom Toll book. Right. Was there a particular scene or a particular section of the book that you were writing that was that was your favorite to write? Well, there are a couple I enjoyed very much. One of the ones I enjoyed very much was the scene with Chroma leading the sunrise. Absolutely. And uh, I just, I mean, it was it was so liberating. It was a sense of I had the whole world in the palm of my hand, you know. Yes. And I loved the musical, the imagery of the music and what you were seeing. Uh, and I think again, something I tried to do very much in the book was get people to look at things in different ways, like the way sounds would look uh, and things like that, so that you, you transpose things and try to understand them in other terms. And, and that worked. And the other, the other scene I, I had such great fun with were all the scenes with the demons, because these were all my personal demons, you know, and in many cases still are. Uh, you know, the, the, um, the terrible trivium who keeps you from doing what you're supposed to be doing and the, the census taker, all of those people were part of my life. And part of growing up was not getting rid of them, but was getting to the point right where I could live with them. <laughs> and then was there any section that was particularly difficult to write or to complete? Well, I, I can't think of a particular section, but in, I'm, I'm a writer that I write very slowly. I write, um, I rewrite hundreds of times. Maybe not hundreds, but I've rewritten sections of that book and almost every book I've done 30, 40, sometimes 50 times because I have a sense, especially in writing for children, that the the rhythm of a book, almost almost the music of it, is almost as important as the content, especially if the content tends to be a little difficult. That there are kids who can read books and go ride past difficult passages and still continue with the book if that rhythm is there. Right. And I think that quite often I would sit and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. Sometimes it was only a matter of changing maybe a word with three syllables to a word with two syllables so the sentence itself had the kind of movement you liked, uh, that kind of thing. And, uh, and so it, all of it was very difficult. I joke when someone asks me about writing because to me there are three, three phases to writing the anticipation of writing, writing, and having written. And I love one and three, the anticipation <laughs> of writing and having written. But writing itself is a lonely, desolate, anxiety-ridden kind of a job, you know. What you have to do is you work and you work and you work and you work and you hope that when you're finished, it sounds exactly like you've written it for the first time. I, I never really much, you know, wanted to be a writer. I always recognized the fact that I could write somewhat, or that I had a, I don't know how to describe this, but a, a kind of a special way to look at things. I really turned things around all the time and looked at them in odd ways, uh, which was, you know, very disconcerting for my parents also, and my teachers. But I, I can't say I ever really wanted to be a writer. Um, I got started writing when I was in the Navy, actually. When I, you know, three quarters of the time you spent in service, you have nothing to do. And so I would, I started doing some sketches, you know, mostly little children's book things, and then I began writing little stories for them. And I, I began to enjoy all of that very much. And uh, during the time I was in service, 
I did those things. And then when I got out, that's when I got started doing that book, or thought I got started doing the book on urban planning and aesthetics or urban perception. And that led me into the other thing. It's all wonderfully accidental. Very nice. It's a sense of numbers and words and numbers versus words. It's the two sorts of, I mean, although there are words certainly involved in uh, in architecture, there's also a lot of a lot of numbers. Oh, yes. yes. Well, you know, it's the classic uh, conflict, I guess, in, in culture, the the, the the battle between the humanities right. and the sciences. Uh, not that, I, you know, that wasn't what I was trying to communicate, but it crossed my mind several times that, that it manifests itself in funny ways. I remember being in school and, and the, those kids who uh, took science or specialized in any of the subjects that were scientific uh, never had, or we always felt, never had a well-rounded education. But those kids who were in liberal arts or art courses, of course, had a wonderful, well-rounded education, despite the fact that they didn't know anything at all about <laughs> right. science. And it seemed to me that when I got started, this was a wonderful kind of game to play, this business of words and numbers and those two kings who fought right. against each other. And you'll notice at the end of the book, some people don't notice this, as they're leaving, after Milo's going home and everybody's leaving, those two kings, uh, King Azaz and the Mathemagician, start the argument all over again as they're walking off as off right, the stage, right. actually. They, they start to quibble again. And you know that those arguments are going to right. be there forever. And they're going to happen. Sometimes they're going to subside. Sometimes they're going to uh, be so important that they'll twist everything right. in our lives. You know. So, so the Phantom Toll Booth, it's going on 50 years that it's been around and in print and loved by people. Well, it came out in 61. So the, in 2011, it's the 50th anniversary. Right, right. And uh, yeah, it's been around for a long time. And it's interesting because when it came out, everybody told me it was going to be a disaster. The, the vocabulary was too difficult. The ideas were too complex. Fantasy was bad for children because it disoriented them. I didn't know any better because it was the first you know book right. I ever did. And I was quite convinced it was going to go right down the huh. drain. And I really come to the conclusion, and I didn't try to do this. I was, wasn't looking for a particular theme. It was just writing about myself and the way I understood things. But the things I was writing about tend to be very universal with kids. I mean, most kids wonder about things like that. Uh, and and the way the book unfolds, you find the younger kids will will understand it on one level. A few years later, they'll understand it on another level. And if they read it again, they'll understand it on another level. But there's a lot in there that so, sort of gets their, its hooks into them. And I'm, I'm again, that's something that pleases me very much. And I wish I could take credit by saying that's what I was trying to do. I'll get many letters from, from children in which they'll tell me about something that I did that they thought was quite wonderful. And I'll, you know, I'll have to write back and say, I never thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> you hadn't intended it. Right. So you said you get a lot of letters. Do children who send you letters or adults who send you letters have over the time that the book has been around, are the letters pretty much the same? I mean, do people talk about the same kinds of things? They are very much the same because they. I think, these, there's, again, as I said, there's a kind of universality right. to the way kids especially begin to understand why it is they're learning anything or what it is that they're learning that will mean in their lives. I remember once a kid asked a question about that. And I said, you know, as you grow up and you're very young, you learn a fact and it's a little spot in the sky, say. And then you learn another fact and it's another spot. And each thing you, and it's not, none of them connect to each other. And as you get older, you're learning a lot more things. And suddenly you realize that 
something way over on one side connects to something way over on the other side. And as you get older and older, not only are you adding information, but you're adding all of these connections between the things so that at a certain point, almost everything you know connects to everything that you've learned. Right. And that's absolutely wonderful. It's, it's, it's a great enlightenment for you. Absolutely. And I remember he was back, the kid I was talking to was absolutely baffled because he didn't understand what I was talking about. And I'm, I'm not sure I did completely, but I think it works something like that. Right. That you, these, the, these connections you make are the real journey in your life. That they're what gives you whatever understanding you have uh, of life and of the things that you're learning. And I suppose all kids have had the experience of a feeling like Milo that day when the toll booth shows up in his apartment, not knowing what to do. And then they find through all that that they become sort of like Milo at the end, where he's excited about some things and excited about some of the new things he's learned and maybe learned to be curious. Oh, I think one of the, one of the great, I think, things that have happened terribly in kids' lives is in, in many ways we have removed boredom from their lives because I think boredom can be one of the great motivators for doing things or learning things or taking a chance or going off in some screwball direction. And everything now is so completely organized, right. you know, whether it's Little League baseball or after-school activities or whatever it is, that in many cases they don't have time to just sit and cope with themselves. And I think that, I, I'm not advocating that boredom as a, a constant thing, but I think kids need space for themselves. Right. Well, when you were the age of your readers, or the bulk of the readers of The Phantom Tollbooth, uh, what sorts of things did you read? Were you a big reader as a child? I was, I was a, a, a very big reader, and uh, I'm trying to think now. I guess the books that made the most impression on me were the Oz books. Uh-huh. My, I had an aunt who every Christmas and every uh, birthday would get me a different Oz book. And they first started out being written by a man named L. Frank Baum. And then when he finished doing them, they somebody else did them. There were three or four authors. And they were wonderful books, you know, imaginative. Uh, I read them now or look at them now, and I'm amazed at how old-fashioned some of the prose sounds. But they had a lot of magic in them. I read books. I had to remember one particular book. I had uh, Folk Tales of Many Lands. And it was a big, fat book, and I must have read it a hundred times. I loved all the things in it. And the other thing, um, my parents had a shelf of books at home, which were long translations of long Russian and Yiddish novels, uh, which I didn't know about at all. And I'd pick them out, and some of them were 1,000, 1,200 pages long. And I would read them, and I wouldn't understand anything about what I was reading. But it was absolutely marvelous to me, number one, the language, that people could use language that way, and secondly, that there were stories could be written about generations of people and their lives, and people were born and people died, and things happened, events happened, and there were misfortunes, and there were wonderful things. But you had a whole world in a book. Right. <laughs> and it was one of the great discoveries you know, of my life. When I got a little older, I read some, and I understood them better. And the other thing, which was, I think, a tremendous influence, was when I was in elementary school, we read a lot of things which at that time were great chores, and most of the kids hated because the reading was difficult. We read Dickens, we read Scott, we read uh, uh, Shakespeare, we read uh, 
books like uh, Giants in the Earth, the Rolvog book, uh, a whole lot of things that were very demanding. And yet, when you read them, or years later when you look back, at least for me, they were the things, they were the building blocks for my use of language because they were so strong in their use of language. And I think that's something we've taken away a little bit from kids in school, some of that marvelous writing. Harper Audio presents The Phantom Tollbooth by Norton Juster, performed by David Hyde Pierce. Chapter 1, Milo. There was once a boy named Milo who didn't know what to do with himself, not just sometimes, but always. When he was in school, he longed to be out. And when he was out, he longed to be in. On the way, he thought about coming home, and coming home, he thought about going. Wherever he was, he wished he were somewhere else. And when he got there, he wondered why he'd bothered. Nothing really interested him, least of all the things that should have. It seems to me that almost everything is a waste of time, he remarked one day as he walked dejectedly home from school. I can't see the point in learning to solve useless problems or subtracting turnips from turnips or knowing where Ethiopia is or how to spell February. And since no one bothered to explain otherwise, he regarded the process of seeking knowledge as the greatest waste of time of all. As he and his unhappy thoughts hurried along, for while he was never anxious to be where he was going, he liked to get there as quickly as possible. It seemed a great wonder that the world, which was so large, could sometimes feel so small and empty. And worst of all, he continued sadly, there's nothing for me to do, nowhere I'd care to go, and hardly anything worth seeing. He punctuated this last thought with such a deep sigh that a house sparrow singing nearby stopped and rushed home to be with his family. Without stopping or looking up, Milo dashed past the buildings and busy shops that lined the street, and in a few minutes reached home, dashed through the lobby, hopped onto the elevator, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and off again, opened the apartment door, rushed into his room, flopped dejectedly into a chair, and grumbled softly, another long afternoon. He looked glumly at all the things he owned, the books that were too much trouble to read, the tools he'd never learned to use, the small electric automobile he hadn't driven in months, or was it years? And the hundreds of other games and toys and bats and balls and bits and pieces scattered around him. And then, to one side of the room, just next to the phonograph, he noticed something he had certainly never seen before. Who could possibly have left such an enormous package and such a strange one? For while it was not quite square, it was definitely not round and for its size it was larger than almost any other big package of smaller dimension that he'd ever seen. Attached to one side was a bright blue envelope, which said simply, For Milo, who has plenty of time. Of course, if you've ever gotten a surprise package, you can imagine how puzzled and excited Milo was. And if you've never gotten one, pay close attention, because someday you might. I don't think it's my birthday, he puzzled. 
and Christmas must be months away, and I haven't been outstandingly good, or even good at all. He had to admit this, even to himself. Most probably I won't like it anyway, but since I don't know where it came from, I can't possibly send it back. He thought about it for quite a while, and then opened the envelope, but just to be polite. One genuine turnpike toll booth, it stated, and then it went on, easily assembled at home and for use by those who have never traveled in lands beyond. Beyond what, thought Milo, as he continued to read. This package contains the following items. One genuine turnpike toll booth to be erected according to directions. Three precautionary signs to be used in a precautionary fashion. Assorted coins for use in paying tolls. One map up-to-date and carefully drawn by master cartographers depicting natural and man-made features, one book of rules and traffic regulations which may not be bent or broken. And in smaller letters at the bottom, it concluded, Results are not guaranteed, but if not perfectly satisfied, your wasted time will be refunded. Following the instructions, which told him to cut here, lift there, and fold back all around, he soon had the toll booth unpacked and set up on its stand. He fitted the windows in place and attached the roof, which extended out on both sides, and fastened on the coin box. It was very much like the toll booths he had seen many times on family trips, except, of course, it was much smaller and purple. What a strange present, he thought to himself. The least they could have done was to send a highway with it, for it's terribly impractical without one. But since, at the time, there was nothing else he wanted to play with, he set up the three signs, Slow down approaching toll booth. Please have your fare ready. Have your destination in mind. And slowly unfolded the map. As the announcement stated, it was a beautiful map, in many colors, showing principal roads, rivers and seas, towns and cities, mountains and valleys, intersections and detours, and sites of outstanding interest, both beautiful and historic. The only trouble was, that Milo had never heard of any of the places it indicated, and even the names sounded most peculiar. I don't think there really is such a country, he concluded after studying it carefully. Well, it doesn't matter anyway. And he closed his eyes and poked a finger at the map. Dictionopolis, read Milo slowly when he saw what his finger had chosen. Oh, well, I might as well go there as anywhere. He walked across the room and dusted the car off carefully. Then, taking the map and rule book with him, he hopped in and, for lack of anything better to do, drove slowly up to the toll booth. As he deposited his coin and rolled past, he remarked wistfully, I do hope this is an interesting game, otherwise the afternoon will be so terribly dull. Thank you for listening. I'm Anna Maria Alessi. And this episode was edited by Sharon Matlin with production help from Jennifer Monroe. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents. <laughs>